0: God, as we open your word, I pray that we would have a desperation before you of recognizing our need. So Lord, I pray that the posture of our hearts would be humble. I pray that this would truly be a time of corporate worship. All of us looking to your word in an attitude of dependence and trust and need. And I pray that in my weakness, your strength would be seen and your strength would be glorified. I thank you, Father, for your sufficient word. I pray today that we would grow in what it means to trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, Second Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19. Today we're going to continue looking at a message that we began last week. The God who can be trusted the god who can be trusted many ways you can outline different passages but i do believe that when we look at second kings chapter 18 and 19 one of the predominant themes is this issue of trusting god it's fascinating because when we look at the word trust the only place that we see it in second kings is in chapter 18 and in chapter 19 or actually just chapter 18 and, and what we find is, throughout these two chapters, is this dilemma. Will Hezekiah trust God, or will he put his trust in man? Will he listen to Sennacherib? Will he listen to the Rabshakeh, who was basically a diplomat? He was a commander. He was someone who was seeking to cause doubt amongst the people. Will he trust in the living God, or will he do it his own way? We look at this in two different scenes. Last week, we looked at scene number one, and we came out of chapter 18. It was a very low moment because all that is taking place, you've got Assyria on the doorsteps of Jerusalem, and we see this plea unto God by Hezekiah. And so we see this low period in the nation's history. We see this humility before God, and we see a man, when faced with desperation, he looks to God. He calls out to the Lord. He runs to the temple. He displays repentance. He displays humility in the way that he covered himself in sackcloth. He All of this was a picture of his attitude and his heart disposition before the Lord. And he sent messengers to the prophet Isaiah. He called for Isaiah to pray for him. It's a picture of The desire of Hezekiah not to seek a word from men. You remember in Jeremiah, we hear the warning of the false teachers and the false prophets. The false prophets were those who would always give a message that was pleasing to the people in a time of need. But That's not what Hezekiah does. He knows Isaiah will give him the word of the Lord. And he longs to hear what God has to say about his situation, not what men might give him. And so we see all of this in scene one. We see God speak through Isaiah to Hezekiah in scene one. So what takes place now is really, really fascinating. What we're going to see today is that now as a result of what we just looked at, Sennacherib threatens the people. He threatens yet again. We see Hezekiah again call out to God. We see God reveal again through Isaiah, not only a word to Sennacherib, not only a word to Hezekiah, but uh, he reveals who he is. He reveals his character. And then we see the death of Sennacherib. So as we've been looking at this passage, we've seen two different principles. Number one, Hezekiah's reliance on God. We saw that in scene one. You look at verses one through seven, you can go through it, and you can see a picture of how Hezekiah trusted God in a time of crisis. But then we also saw how God is worthy to be relied on. So we not only want to look at the life of Hezekiah, and glean what we can understand about what it means to trust God, what it means to look to God and rely on God. At the same time, we want to evaluate and observe the characteristics of who God is. Because in the midst of this chapter, we learn not only about a man who's faithful and trusting God, but we learn about a God who is worthy and able to be relied on. So let's jump in. We get into verse 7 here, 7 and 8. And let's read a few verses just to get acclimated. We read in verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Taraka, king of Cush, Behold, he is set up to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telesar? Where's the king of Hamarth, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hainah, or the king of Iva? Hezekiah received from the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel... Enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. We come into this, and it's it's really interesting because there's a promise and a prediction in verse 7. And in verse 7, what do we read? We read in chapter 19, verse 7, Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor... And return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, the first part of the prediction that that is given by God through the prophet is going to be fulfilled. I believe in verse eight and nine. The first part. The second part of the prediction is going to be seen in the fulfillment of Sennacherib's death at the end of chapter nineteen. So, as we jump into verse eight and nine. I believe what we're looking at is we are exposed to the rumor that Sennacherib heard that would cause him to leave Lachish and go back to his land. And what is that rumor? We read there in verse 9. And first of all, in verse 8, the rabbishaka returned, found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. Libna is close to Lachish, north of Lachish. It's really a small place, very close to Lachish. Verse 9, now the king heard concerning Teraka, the king of Cush. The king of Cush would have been southern Egypt. So what has he heard? Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So it almost appears, there's debate here, because it doesn't specifically lay it out. But what appears to be happening is that Sennacherib, Here's a rumor, the rumor that was prophesied in verse seven. And the rumor of the southern, the, 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 the guy in Egypt, the rumor that he's coming against them causes him to do what? Do the very same thing that God just predicted. So now he's sort of in turmoil, you get the sense. He's got to go back to his homeland to take care of his own place because he's got to ward off this threat. At the same time, in his disdain for Hezekiah, he threatens him. It's almost like, all right, I got to leave right now, but I'm going to give you a threat yet again. I want you to be scared of me, and I want to cast doubt into your God. So, so God's word is faithful. God is not mocked by the leaders of this world. It's overwhelming when you think about all of the tyrants of, of the world that we live in. Uh, just being in Romania and hearing about the dictatorship of Ceausescu under communism, and not many people think about Ceausescu when they think about some of the most brutal murderers ever in history. He's right there with the ranks of Saddam Hussein. He's right there with, I mean, everybody who's ever been notorious as a leader in the world. And what we find, though, is it's easy when we look at that from contemporary current events to be overwhelmed. But one of the The background themes of 2 Kings is that God is not mocked. God raises up leaders, and he puts down leaders. God has predestined this world according to his plan, and that should give us great comfort because God works out all things according to the counsel of his will, and no plan of God will be thwarted. Does that cause you to exhale a little bit this morning? I pray it causes you to exhale a lot. Because sometimes the way we view God, we view God as if God is seeking to do the best that he can to react to the world. And yet we read the scripture and we look at the Old Testament. We see the epistles. We see everything we can glean about the character of God and his sovereign will. And it should cause us to recognize this world is under the sovereign wisdom of God when we overreact, when our blood pressure raises, it doesn't dismiss our involvement in the public arena. It doesn't dismiss our responsibility as Christians in the way that we live, in the way that we vote, in the way that we interact with culture. But yet if we lose sight of God's sovereignty, the other side will always be out of balance we will always fall into disarray. And so we see a principle here, not just a historical fact, we see that God is not mocked by the events that take place in the world. And when it looks like all things are falling apart, we can be assured under the sovereign hand of God, things are actually coming together. So we read here, all that is taking place, the prediction is coming true. We get into verse 10. He's casting doubt. If you remember at the end of chapter eight, verses 28 through 30, the, the, the diplomat, so to speak, the Rapshika, what is he doing? He, he's deceiving, he's calling out saying that Hezekiah was deceiving the people. But now he's making a bold and very dangerous statement. In verse 10, he's basically saying, God is the one who is the deceiver. He's the one who's deceiving Hezekiah. That's what he's seeking to do. In verse 11, behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? He's like, look at us. Look at our track record. Look at what we've done. And then what he does is he's going to give a list of 10 cities and nations 10 cities and nations, and he's going to basically show their record. He's basically like, look, I remember, you know, playing in basketball camps as a kid. My One of my favorite ones I ever went to was at UTC, and you're on a team, and you're playing against other teams, and you get to go jump off the high dive at lunch. It's a, it's a blast. And uh, But all the teams sort of talk smack, and you sort of like, you, you measure each other up. And I remember one day being in a line, and we were going from the old... Uh, we were going into the new roundhouse, which really dates me. That was in the 80s. And, uh, and we, we, that was big time to play in there. And, and as we're going over there, you're sort of trying to figure out what teams are the most competitive. And the teams that are the most competitive are talking smack because they're like, you can't beat us. We haven't lost all day. We're going to beat you. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, look, look at our track record. Verse 12, Gozen, Haran, Rezeph, the people of Eden who were in Telasar. And then in the verse 13, he continues. Notice the others that he gives. Again, it's a combination of cities, a combination of nations. If you were to look at Atlas, you could see where all these places are. There's debate on where some of them are. Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Severphim? I can't say that word real well. The king of Hana. If you don't say that to people, they just think you know really well the pronunciations. The king of Hanah or the king of (laughs) Eva. And and so we get here and we see this arrogance on display. In verse 14, notice what happens. The letter is now received. How does Hezekiah respond? How do we respond when we're faced with fear, when we're faced with trials, when we're faced with circumstances that we cannot handle? What do we do? We've looked at over and over in the book and the narrative of the kings of Israel and Judah. We've seen a consistent theme of leaders who rather than run to God and rather than humble themselves in dependence, they've sought out earthly means. They've looked to foreign allies. They've looked to others. They've looked to false prophets. They've looked in all kinds of direction. But what do we see here? We see a man by the grace of God who exemplifies for us the way God calls us to respond in the face of fear, in the face of a trial. And what does Hezekiah do? He reads the letter and he went up to the temple. He went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. He's desperate. Here is the powerful King of Judah and he could be seen, you get a sense of on his face before God with this letter with no claim as to any wisdom whatsoever as to how to remedy the problem. Our response in the midst of circumstances reveals much about our heart. It reveals so many things about us. You know. It's a humbling thing to consider because it sort of takes one to know one, and I've been there in my own life. But we have to see something here. A lack of prayer reveals a lack of dependence upon God. If you're living a life that's prayerless, it's basically a statement of your life that says you don't need God. You don't need his wisdom. You don't need his strength. You don't need his provision. You don't need his direction. There's so many things you could fill in the blank there. But what we see is... Hezekiah, just like we saw in the beginning of chapter 19, he now goes to the temple again. He lays out this letter before the Lord. He spreads it out before the Lord. He's desperate. He's desperate to hear from God. He's desperate to get wisdom from the Lord. Earlier in verse 1, it says he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, went into the house of the Lord. Here he receives the letter, went up to the house of the Lord. He spreads it before the Lord, and now he prays. He prays before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of earth, you have made heaven and earth. Let's evaluate everything that he's done. He goes to the temple. He spreads the letter before the Lord. He prays before God. He humbles himself and he expresses a longing for God to be glorified. It's really fascinating. I mentioned this last time, but think about it. He doesn't immediately say, okay, God, they're about to kill us. Please save our lives. He immediately appeals based off of the holiness and the glory of God. And he says in verse 17, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste. The nations, their lands, they've cast their gods into the fire. They were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand. In order that what? that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. It reminds me again, I mentioned it last week because it applied to the first plea and prayer of Hezekiah, even in his response. I mean, we, we saw that he sent messengers, but you saw it even then in the way that he calls out and communicates. It reminds you of... The Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Before we ever get into individual need, Christ calls us to set our eyes and our gaze on who God is and what the ultimate priority truly is in life. The ultimate priority is not an escape from our circumstances. The ultimate priority is the glory of God. The glory of God is superior to any need that I have in my life. And and you see a similarity here in what Hezekiah emphasizes in his prayer. So this reliance of Hezekiah can be seen very clearly. But now let's notice what we learn about the character of God through his prayer. He speaks here in verse 15, and he mentions, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Enthroned above the cherubim. You say, okay, what does it mean to be enthroned above the cherubim? Well, in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, it says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. So we learn here that the area in which he's speaking of, when he speaks about the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, was above the mercy seat between the two cherubim cherubim. Now 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 I want you to think about this because what we learn about the cherubim I, I was looking up a direct, you know, definition of what the cherubim how to convey this. It says in this source the cherubim represented in the Bible are winged creatures that can take various specific forms. Um but we basically have this angelic these angelic creatures. And and what we find here, though, that is so important is that the Old Testament envisions the God of Israel is dwelling in a special way in the Jerusalem temple in this way. So so here's one thing I want you to think about. When you hear him say, O Lord, the God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, it is a remarkable statement of the nearness of God To the people, because God dwells there. God is seen to be there. I was reading another source and I thought this was helpful. It says that on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim, God had said he would dwell between the cherubim in a unique sense. And here he's speaking to the God who has. In his grace, come near. The nearness of God is what is represented. Hezekiah approaches a God who is near, a God who desires to fellowship with people. He's presented himself this way in his sovereignty, in his design. It's so many exciting things to consider when we say, How is the new covenant better than the old covenant? And we think about how Jesus Christ fulfills the new covenant. And we think about through Christ, even when we read John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it's literally the picture that Jesus Christ, as he lived and walked, he was the Shekinah glory of God was present everywhere he went. He dwelt among us. The presence of God was not in a a location according to that time frame, according to the law, and according to all that was happening in the Old Testament. We see Jesus as the fulfillment, and we see in the new covenant so much better way. But we see not only his nearness, but look at what Hezekiah says about the grace of God. Listen to Psalm 81 about the cherubim. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. In Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. It reveals the presence of God. It reveals the nearness of God. And even there, the power of God. But not only do we see his nearness, we see his uniqueness. His uniqueness is emphasized in verse 15. He says that you are the God, you alone. He's the only God. He's the one and only God. And and in a world of, of, of pluralism, in a world of many gods, in a world of multiple idols, Here, Hezekiah makes it clear and evident in his prayer. Not only is he a God who's near, he's a unique God because he's the only God. He is not only the only God of all the kingdoms of the earth, but he's unique in that he is the creator God. He created it all. He's enthroned above the cherubim. He's the one and only God. He's the the creator God. But not only does he demonstrate those two facets of the nature of God, he speaks about the grace of God. L- look at how he prays and the, what he requests reveals to us who God is. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. And then in verse 17, notice what he goes on to pray. Or in verse 17, he says, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. He's contrasting who God is versus these fake gods. Notice his grace. He inclines. He hears He sees, he saves. He inclines, he hears, he sees, he saves. The word incline is a word that means to stretch out, to extend, to pay attention. It means that God moves towards us to pay attention to our prayers. We we see this culminated in the life of the Christian who's now in oneness with God unity with Christ through the work of the cross that now we have boldness and access and we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need. But he pays attention to us. He extends himself to us. This speaks about the character of God. He inclines himself. He hears us. I was looking at other passages where you see these words, and in one passage that that stood out was Daniel chapter 9 verse 18. And notice in Daniel 9:18, he uses the word incline, he uses the word hear, he uses the word see, he uses the word eyes. And notice what he says, "Oh my God, incline your ear and hear." Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. It's very similar to what Hezekiah is praying, because God is a God of grace. He inclines himself towards us. He hears us. He sees us. He saves us. It's interesting because the same Hebrew word for incline can be used in a way of judgment. It can be used in a way of judgment. It speaks about the judgment of God in different places. In Isaiah 5, the same word, therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them. If we refuse to bow before the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than God incline and stretch out to us in a manner of grace, He stretches out towards us in a way of condemnation, in a way of judgment. So we see here that Hezekiah says, you are a God of grace. To those who humble themselves before you, they experience you inclining towards them, hearing them, seeing them, saving them. And then he speaks, we see God's words directly through the mouth of Isaiah. Earlier we saw Isaiah Reveal a message back to Hezekiah. And now God gives Isaiah words for Hezekiah yet again. In verse 20, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. He's heard. We see that here God is saying, I am the one who hears. He heard, you remember in the very first beginning of chapter 19, when he reaches out to Isaiah. And he reaches out to Isaiah and it says, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh in verse 4. And I love this because it could have been a mark of humility of Hezekiah at this point. Maybe he, I don't know, we don't know for sure. It doesn't tell us, but it's fascinating to me that after what he said in verse four, God wants to assure Hezekiah, I hear you. I hear you, I hear, I see. He not only hears, but we see in the words of God. He goes on, she despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, and then in verse 22, God reveals, it's not only that he hears, it's as if God says, not only do I hear, I am holy. He says, whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. He's unlike us. He's set apart. And he was speaking to now the Assyrian leaders. And he's saying, look, whom have you mocked? Whom have you reviled? You don't understand who you're dealing with. Against the Holy One of Israel. So not only does he hear, he's holy. I want you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And, and it's fascinating to read Isaiah in light of the fact that he is a contemporary. And we see that he's a contemporary because Hezekiah is dealing directly with him and he's sending messages Hezekiah. So it's obvious, but it also helps us to remember when we read the book of Isaiah that Assyria sits in the background of the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse 21, it says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. And then verse 25 reminds me of our text. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So we come back to 2 Kings 19.22. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Do you know who I am? And he says at the end of that verse, against the Holy One of Israel. And then he highlights their pride. Look at their pride in verse 23. We saw a glimpse of it earlier when we saw the ten cities and nations. But verse 23, by your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon, I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. Their lives, their attitude was filled with arrogant boasting. They were so proud of what they had accomplished. That's exactly the attitude of Assyria. But what we see is now the reality is God is not mocked. And it goes on in verse 24, it continues this boastful resume of their power in the world and how great they thought they were. I dug wells and drank foreign waters and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. And then it says a shocking reality. We see that God not only hears, he says, I hear. He says, I am holy But then now he says, look, I am sovereign. And notice how he says it. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Wow. He basically states here that he Planned from days of old, the very military conquest of a wicked nation like Assyria. And what have we learned as we've been studying kings? God raises up wicked people often to be what? A rod of judgment against wicked people. And sometimes as a way of discipline against his own people. But what do we learn in the full picture and the full scope of things? Wickedness will be judged. And what we have happening here, most scholars believe is taking place in 701 BC. Guess what happens about, I don't want to do math right now, 89 years later. In 612 BC, Babylon takes down Assyria. Assyria had an undefeated record. They were dominating the land. But God is not mocked. God was using this pagan people in a way that only he could understand in his sovereign plan. And he was using them to execute judgment against the nations. He was using them as a rod of judgment against his own people. And yet what happens? He's telling them, look, you think you're at the center of all of this, and you don't even realize that your very success came through my plan." Isn't it sad when we lose sight of who we really are? Humility, I've heard it said, is a proper understanding of who we are before God. Anytime you deal with proud and arrogant people, they've lost sight of who they are. And they don't even understand that every gift, every bit of intellect, every bit of athleticism, every Sense of creativity, every ability, every ounce of anything they would credit themselves with comes through God. Is not a mark of their own doing. I pray we've learned from the pride and the, the, the just the braggadocious ways of Assyria in this passage, verse twenty-six. God continues His plan and His wisdom and His sovereign will in the background of these arrogant rulers. He says, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it has grown. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. God is not mocked. When it looks like through our eyes that God is not judging the wicked, we don't know the full picture. We don't understand that ultimately God will right every wrong. Ultimately, all evil will be judged. This morning, I pray that you would take this serious because it has great implications for all of us. God is not mocked by our sin we will stand before a holy God and give an account. And this this leads us, if, if we don't see the gospel of Christ, it would lead us to great despair because God will weigh all of our deeds in the courtroom of his divine justice. And it gets us to the reality that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, apart from the grace of a sinless substitute who takes our place, we have no hope to stand before a holy creator. But there's now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, amen? To those in Jesus Christ, the Savior who gave his life for us takes our sin upon himself, takes the wrath of God in our place that we might now live and that we might experience forgiveness and pardon but we see that God is not mocked. He sees it all. He sees they're sitting down. He sees they're going out. He sees they're coming in. He sees they're raging. He sees it all from his sovereign hand. But then we see this God is powerful. He's not only the one who hears. He's not only the one who's holy. He's not only the one who is sovereign, But listen to how he will judge. Verse 28, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. I I find it interesting. Last night I was... uh, Fishing with Will, and we were—he uh, was fishing a worm, and he was asking me how to put that hook into the worm. And I was telling him, basically, just showing him how to do a Texas rig fishing. And 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 that hook goes into the head of that worm. Now you may read this and go, "That is bizarre way to put judgment." But do you realize I was looking, listen to this quote to this day. Reliefs in the British Museum and other collections depict the Assyrians as leading some of their captives with chains through their jaws or hooks through their noses. The Assyrians would take their captors and they would put hooks in their noses. And God says, I will put my hook in your nose. God is not mocked. And my bit in your mouth. And so we keep going. We get into verse 29, and this shall be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. God is giving a hopeful message to Hezekiah of the remnant of Judah. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. This is an amazing promise. It's a promise that God has not done with Israel. God is not done with Judah. God has a plan. There's a remnant. Do you realize that Isaiah had a son? You know what his name meant? The remnant will return. That was the name of his son and the meaning of his name. In verse 31, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Remember, that sounds a lot like Isaiah 9, 7, and where it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and it goes all the way down at the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He says, I hear you. I'm holy, unlike their God's. I'm sovereign. I'm faithful. And we see his faithfulness, not only with the return of the remnant, but notice verse 32, he's faithful to keep his word. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it this is fascinating. If you went to the British Museum today, one of the places, as you studied the history of Assyria, you would go into the area where they celebrated the Syrian reign, and you would go into the area of Sennacherib, and in one area, there would be a big picture carved out. And in that picture, it is known as the picture where Sennacherib watches the capture of Lachish. He sits on the throne and watches as prisoners are brought before him and executed. And here's what's fascinating. Rather than it being a picture that displayed his conquering of Jerusalem, it doesn't exist because there's no such thing. The best that they could do in that museum and the best that they could do in their records was show Sennacherib and his success against Lachish because he never conquered Jerusalem. Why? Because God was faithful. God says, you'll not come into this city. You'll not shoot an arrow there. You'll not come before it with a shield. You'll not cast up a siege mound against it. And then we keep going. We get into verse 33. Look at verse 33. In verse 33, by the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And that night, The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Wait a minute. Verse 36, then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed, went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adrimelech and Sherezar, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, And Ersadon, his son, reigned in his place. We don't know if this is what it's referring to, but in extra-biblical sources in other lands, we read about rats that infiltrated the Assyrians. And people have speculated, was it possible that God used rats to come in and destroy and the the bubonic plague literally wiped out the entire 185,000? We don't know. We know that it's mentioned In other places as some drastic tragedy that took place to the Assyrians. We don't know for sure, but we know one thing, that God is not only the one who hears, he's not only holy, he's not only sovereign, he's faithful. He's faithful. So we look at all of this. We see God is faithful to his word. He promised the death of Sennacherib. He went back to his land. He died in his land. And what did we learn this morning? Last week when we were finishing up, I asked you a few questions. I said, are you disillusioned about what's going on in the world? And I challenged you through the word here to say, look, all of us can get disillusioned, but take comfort in what we learn about the sovereign hand of God. Ask you, are you fearful? Are you anxious? Are you trusting? And I want to build on that this morning. I want you to think here. If I had a piece of paper that I passed out to everybody here, I gave every one of you one. And I said, okay, put your name at the top. And I had three questions. And I said, "One question number one, do we need to fear? And I had a box said yes, a box said no. I think everybody here would put no. Do we need to fear? No. Can God be trusted? I think that uh, if your name's at the top, you're probably going to put Yes. And I think even if I said, can you give me any verses to support your answers, many of you would give me a verse. But that would just be your theological statement on paper, but it not, wouldn't necessarily reflect your practical theology in real time. Because we might all pass that test, give Sunday school answers with 100% support, and walk out of this room And it's not going to be Sennacherib, thankfully, that we're going to be dealing with, but there's going to be other things that would sort of like be our Sennacherib, other temptations to worry, to fear, to be disillusioned, to doubt whether or not we can trust God what is your practical theology? And when your practical theology is where the rubber hits the road, it's, it's the truth of your life. It's not your doctrinal statement. It's the way you live. It's the way you act. It's the way you respond in real time. And, and I want you to think of something here because if we could just see by the grace of God, the Sennacheribs and everything that we're tempted to fear ultimately will be wiped away. They'll be wiped away. I was reading um, a passage in the book of Nahum. And you may be thinking, what in the world were you reading out of Nahum for? Um, well, there's two prophets to Assyria in the Old Testament. And, and both of them have the, the letters N-A-H in them. One of them is Jonah. And one of them is Nahum. And you know what it says, and this is phenomenal, because do you realize that Jonah went to Nineveh before this took place? Jonah, the city of Nineveh, had experienced a revival. They had experienced people coming to the true and living God, and yet what did they do? 50, 60 years later, they rejected it. They rejected it and they went after the people of God. And not only that, but if you go all the way down from 701 BC and you go another 50 years to around 650, here's what it says to Nahum chapter three. It says, draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will be the, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts. Isn't it interesting? It's almost like he's turning their braggadocious statements on them. And he's saying, let me tell you about your power. It is going to be squashed. And he gives the judgment upon them. We can learn a lot about that. Because do you realize this morning, as we think about our lives, and we think about trusting God, and we think about worry, and we think about anxiety, what if this morning, by the grace of God, our hearts were comforted to understand that in Jesus Christ, we are secure. And then a million years from now, all the things of this world will pass away. But what will happen? All those in Christ will live eternally assured of his victory and his faithfulness. You see, if we can understand the ending, I prayed that it would give us an opportunity to see different in the present. In this passage, We need to consider the character of God. God is near. God is unique. God is gracious. God hears. He's holy. He's sovereign. He's faithful. And in Christ Jesus, do you realize that every one of these characteristics has come to a fulfilling place? Christ has conquered. In Christ Jesus, we learn that we are secure, that we have boldness and access to come with confidence before him, Hebrews 10, 19. This morning, though, I want you to learn from Hezekiah. I want you to consider the ending. Consider the ending. I want you to consider God's character, and I want you to consider Hezekiah and what we learn about prayer in his life. I was reading in one commentary And it gave a really simple but practical guide of prayer. And I'm following it exactly as I read it. And it says an acronym for the word trust. It says, notice what Hezekiah did. Number one, trust, the word T. He says, take it before the Lord. Take it before the Lord. What happened when Hezekiah was overwhelmed? He physically laid his burden before God. I pray that we could learn from him. What are you overwhelmed with? What are you overwhelmed with? We can learn from Hezekiah. Take it before God. Take it before God. An R there, T-R. We could use that letter. It says in this commentary, recognize the greatness of God. What do we do when we come before God? We, we, we take it there. We lay our burden before God. And we not only lay it before God, we, we recognize who God is. We affirm what God says about himself and his character and his word. Then, then he goes on. Not only do we take it before the Lord, T, we recognize the greatness of God, or we unload the problem to God. And he says here, he asked God to listen closely and hear and see. It says, talk out your issue in God's presence. Lay it out. Put it out there. Put everything that you're concerned about into the presence of God. Pray to him honestly, openly. Unload the burden, unload the problem. But then the word S or the letter S, seek the help of God. And what does he do? Now, Lord, our God, please save us from his hand. He gives a request. This morning, think about all of the worry and the anxiety and the stress of the constant activity of replaying things constant activity of dwelling with thought processes. Think about fear and how you literally can start to see this uh, building up of strongholds in your mind where literally your mind is just becoming overwhelmed. And what we learn here, what does he do? He takes all of that that we could be doing in our fleshly means, and he goes to God. He goes to God. He takes it before God. He recognizes the greatness of God. He unloads the problem to God. He seeks the help of God. And then the T, treasure, the glory of God. He reminds us that his purpose in his prayer was so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God. And he says, remember the glory of God in this process. So this morning, we can learn from Hezekiah. We can learn from his life, and we can learn from his prayer that there's a better way. And, and I pray that as we think about 18 and 19, we could see God is capable of holding our trust. He's the God who can be trusted. And so I pray it's not just a lesson It's not just a lesson we go, okay, we got some characteristics of God. We see Hezekiah's faithfulness. But I pray that we would say, okay, God, by your grace, by your glory, I pray that I practically would take steps to trust you, to depend on you, and to learn from Hezekiah and to learn from your character. So this morning, let us run and trust to the God who can be Rely on. on. you bow your head. God, I thank you for the life of Hezekiah. I thank you for the grace that you poured out in his life that he could walk in these ways. And Lord, the, the common reality of what we share with Hezekiah is that temptation to be fearful and overwhelmed. When it comes to life and it comes to situations and circumstances and fears. And oh God, we need the grace of your Son to live differently. I pray this morning all of us would have a healthy sense of how much we need you and how desperate we are for your grace. I pray each one of us here today would see our desperate need of Christ. I thank you, Lord, it's truly only through the grace of your Spirit that we can live. Not dominated by fear, not dominated by worldly thoughts. But the only way we can live trusting you is through your grace. We thank you that you are a God of grace and that you freely give it to all who call on your name. I pray our hearts would be humbled. We would see your glory. We would be compelled to thank you, to worship you, to be overwhelmed at who you are. God, forgive us when we take on the future and seek not only to understand it, but seek to try to deal with it in our minds. I pray we would rest in what we learn about who you are, that you're the sovereign creator, that you have ordered all things, and we can rest in your plan. I pray this morning we would grow in our trust. We thank you and we praise you for the fulfillment of all these attributes, all these characteristics in a way that we can see more brilliantly through the cross of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray.